the future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's NOLA's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's NOLA is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A dot com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's NOLA's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway. If you like what we're doing, be sure to subscribe and give us a thumbs up on YouTube or a positive review on Apple. And sitting next to me today in the front seat is Sophie Edwards. Sophie is an internet marketer, specifically the co-owner of Cloud Surfing Media, which provides SEO and other online marketing solutions for a wide variety of businesses. More importantly, for the purposes of this episode, Sophie is a career blogger and writer. Her Instagram blog on her experiences and thoughts as a transgender woman It's one of the most thoughtful and thought-provoking blogs I've read anywhere and on any topic. We're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. Um, She also has written fiction, nonfiction, and satirical pieces. She has an amazing YouTube blog called We Have Always Existed, which is about ancient Mediterranean transgender history that is similarly well, well worth watching. She's also a public speaker, a drumist, and a nature lover. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's so good to be here. (laughs) It is good to have you. I'm very excited about this. Before we just 
stand up at the top of the diving board and, and dive head in. Let's go over the theme of the season because you are only the second guest of our third season. And I'm excited about that. As those who are listeners and viewers of the show know, our theme this season is about dislodging toxic myths to ignite our inner charisma and then magnetize and monetize freedom. And you have a lot to say about that in a number of different ways and from a number of different perspectives. And it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Myths have a lot to say about who we are inside. They've lasted for thousands of years and resonate with people to this day because of that. They also have a lot to say about the stories that we create for ourselves. So going right into the theme of myth, if you were to tell us who your mythical avatar is, Sophie, who would that be? Well, this is a this is the perfect. Um, it's perfect that I'm joining the podcast on this season because you know I did my undergrad degree in this in well in classical studies. Um, mythology is a big part of that. So, and you know wow. we've we've had many discussions about this stuff. So this is this is this is a perfect time on here. Um, the first one that came to my mind was the Odyssey, but the second one is a newer. Um, a newer interest of mine, which is the goddess Sibylle, um, who has like mm -hmm. 15 different names, like every goddess does. So I'm just going to call her Sibylle, yeah. just to keep it simple. The Romans called her Magna Mater. There's also Kubele, uh, mm -hmm. Kubelea. Um, there's, there's, there's a bunch of them. I'm not going to get into them all. Um, and the goddess Sibylle is interesting, um, for many reasons. Um, and what one of them is actually it ties into the Odyssey, um, or rather the Homeric cycle through the Aeneid, um, which is the journey of Aeneas from Troy to mm -hmm. eventually founding the city of Rome. It's basically Roman state mm -hmm. propaganda, but yeah, it's, 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 it's well written, uh, from a, from a Latin poetry perspective. Um, and so Sibylle serves as, a helper for Aeneas along the way, but it's also interesting to watch in other different moments of mythology where Sibylle is there in the background, but she's not mm -hmm. really a major player. And yet many of the events that play out, um, in, in mythology wouldn't have happened without Sibylle. Um, another, another one of her epithets is uh, not epithets. Her one of her names is Rhea, uh, so Cronus's wife, uh, and as a result, mm -hmm. Zeus's mom. Um, and so, basically, we wouldn't have had Zeus without her, um, and all the other gods that Zeus begot. Um, and uh, also, her worship was unmistakably transgender. Wow. I did not know the latter. And for those who aren't familiar, I will call her Rhea. That's how I know her. Sibylle, I may slip in and out back and forth. It's interesting. Sibylle slash Rhea actually was a more important goddess than the number of myths about her would yeah. indicate. I, if, if anyone ever goes to Greece and has a chance to go to the site Olympia, for instance, which is a stunningly beautiful ancient Greek site, there is a temple to Rhea. Have you been? There. And... What Have you, you been? 
Absolutely. Um, and seeing that was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you haven't. No, I haven't. I can't wait to see the pictures when you go. It has your name written all over it. And I will think about you every single time I look at photos of that particular temple, which I had no idea was there until I went there. I'm interested and intrigued by the fact that you are um, choosing a goddess that was the mother of all of the other gods. Talk to us a little bit more about how she speaks to you specifically. Um, you mentioned that she has influence over a lot of events, even though she isn't necessarily a foreground player, but also that her worship involved um, transgenderism or a transgender experience. And I, I don't think that that's commonly known. And I'd never been aware of that until this very second. Actually. No, it's, it's not commonly known. And spoiler alert, one of my next videos is going to be on that subject. Uh, not the very next one, but at, at, at some point in the next year or so, you'll see a video on that. Um, I've done some really deep diving research into her worship. Um, and um, there is no possible way that I can, th that video will be more than an hour long. I'm sure there's no possible way I can wow. wrap it up in, 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 in this podcast, yeah. but, um, but the, um, yeah, they, it, they, her priests were called the Galai, G-A-L-L-A-E. Gala is singular, Galai is plural. You may see them referred to as Galli as well. That's the male version. Uh, whereas Galai is the feminine version. And when you read their, um, their worship of, of, of Sibley, um, they, you are, when you read, when you read it, you are basically reading about the experience of trans women in ancient Rome. Um, they may have ex existed in Greece as well. We don't know. Um, at, at least I mm. haven't found a lot of evidence, but, uh, the Romans talked about them a lot. Um, and so I've, it, it has compelled me to, um, to take a look more closely at the Sibylle myth and try to figure out what it is that drew what would be yeah. the ancient parallel of me and people like me to her worship. Um, I think one of the more interesting things about her is, I mean, and, and I think this kind of ties in with um, me as the drummer. I've, I've played in bands. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've played live shows a bunch of times and love it. the drummer is never front and center. Um, the drummer is always in the background. In fact, like if you think about being on stage, you have yeah. singer, guitarist, bassist, maybe a keyboard player, maybe a horn player, who knows? And then the drummer literally has an entire barricade built between them and the audience. Mm. And so, and, mm. and as a result, the drummer is always very much in the background. The drummer is never the one that draws the most attention from the crowd. And yet you pluck the drummer out of there, you're definitely going to notice her her absence and I, th I think the same is with uh with Sibley as well yeah definitely the entire mythic cycle the whole concept of olympians couldn't have existed without her i find it interesting by the way 
moving on to the Odyssey, that the mythical figures that both of us have as avatars actually play central roles in that particular story. So my mythical avatar is Helios, which you know, the audience may not, was the god of the sun. Mm -hmm. And the god of the sun we'll talk about a little bit more in relation to some of the other themes that we'll discuss later. His role in the Odyssey, for those who don't know, is actually antagonistic. A prophet told the hero Odysseus to stay away from an island that basically was owned by the sun god. And under no circumstances should the oxen that were sacred to the sun god be touched. Of course, um, Odysseus and his men went to that island due to a number of circumstances and his men up and decided that they were going to ignore the prophecy. Now, prophecies in mythology only exist to come true. So there was a lot of tragedy that resulted from that. You mentioned the Odyssey yourself a few minutes ago. Let's talk about why that saga speaks to you. Yeah. So, I mean, I could get into all the like, like the, the archaeologist in me and the historian in me can get into all the nerdy bits about like different, uh, you know, uh, for those who don't know in the audience, the Odyssey was an oral poem. Um, as far as we can tell, there was a city called Troy. Um, it was destroyed. There were Greeks there. We found Greek arrowheads there. Did Greek, did the Greeks destroy Troy? We don't know. We know there were a few Greeks there. Um, mm -hmm. that's all we know. It happened best we can guess around 1250. The Odyssey was written, best we can guess, around between seven and 800 BCE. And mm -hmm. so there's a 500 year gap there where there's mm -hmm. like, the, we just don't, you know, the, the, there's a gap. And so what happened was it was passed down orally. And so there's different, you know, you'll have a description of, you know, a battle scene where, um, somebody's wearing a helm from the 10th century and using a spear from the 12th century and stabbing someone who's wearing a chest plate from the 9th century. Um, but that's not why we're here. Um, the, um, the story of, of the Odyssey and of Odysseus. I mean, Odysseus was not the greatest dude. He did some stuff along the way that's not so good. Um, there are some problems with the story for sure, uh, when viewing it from a modern lens. But in many ways, it is a story of perseverance, of, mm -hmm. of not settling for mm -hmm. what you know you don't want, but what is comfortable. Mm -hmm. And mm. understanding that you are dedicated to making your life what you want it to be. And mm -hmm. even the gods aren't going to stop you from doing that. Mm. And that is exactly what happens. The god Poseidon hates Odysseus for reasons that are legit and does a lot to thwart him. And Odysseus really does have to come into his own and find his way home. And it takes him many, many years, but he finds his truth and he's able to live it. Now, we all learn, if anything, from this story that change, growth, 
and creative use of our thinking is necessary for us to really change the narratives and the stories of our lives. Talk to me a little bit about your own life and to what motivated you to really connect with these stories as something that might be relevant to people today? Well, from a, from a personal perspective, um, well, first of all, from the perspective of it being relevant to people today, even though the language is very, um, it, it, it's ancient sounding. I don't know how else, to, how else to describe it other than it sounds ancient. Um, and yeah. yet the story, the way it's being described is still very much a human story. Yes, there are gods. Yes, there are people who get turned into pigs. Yes, there are one-eyed monsters that'll gore your men and eat them for dinner. But at the end of the day, it is very much a human, human story. And so when you look at, you know, Odysseus has been 20 years away from his family, 20 years away from his mm. home, from his son, from his wife, from his father, from everything he's ever known. And even though several times along the way, he's presented with a place that's pretty comfortable, pretty all right. You know, he stays with yeah. Calypso on the island and <laughs> they have sex every night for like 10 years. And yet yeah. afterwards, he sits on the shore and cries because he knows, even though this is comfortable, even though he gets to have sex with a god every night. I'm sure it was great, but it's not him. It's, 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 it's not right. It's, yeah. it's like, I don't know, taking a Stradivarius violin and playing the wrong notes on it. Yeah. In a way, it reminds me of that movie, The Matrix, because he is having wonderful experiences with Calypso, this goddess that has trapped him on this island for 10 years. But like you said, he still ultimately wants to get home because it's not who and what he is. In other words, he is enjoying superficial pleasures at the substitution of connecting with who and what he is. What he is at Ithaca when he gets home is a ruler of an empire or of a kingdom at least that brings a lot of responsibility, but he's also a husband who can't have sex with anyone but his wife, who has to be able to take care of his father, who has to do all of these other things. And the reason why I bring the matrix of all things into it is because the matrix is the story of many things. But one of the pivotal plots or the subplots in that is, and one of the themes of it is that the comfort that people are living when they're in the matrix. And I think this, the character Cypher that ultimately goes back into the matrix so that he could live like a rich man and eat steaks, right? That's a metaphor for, and it's no, by the way, coincidence that they name the character Cypher, which is short for Lucifer. He's a demonic character that betrays those that are seeking truth, that are seeking to connect themselves with who and what they are meant to be. He's eating his steaks. He's choosing to stay and have sex with that goddess all the time, um, as opposed to really committing 
however hard it might be to honoring his truth. Yeah, yeah. And the people in the matrix, I mean, you see everybody aboard the Nebuchadnezzar, they're eating slop and living in squalor because living in truth is more important to them than living a lie. However appealing, however, um, however sexy it might be, it, it doesn't matter. They'd rather live in just disgusting, horrible conditions and eat slop because it's, at least it's real. And we're going to talk about what's real and freedom a lot late, a lot as this show progresses. But in order to get to freedom, we have to be willing to, unless you're like the lioness Elsa in this 1970s movie called Born Free, but even Elsa, this lioness wasn't, she was born free. She didn't, she just didn't live that way for a while. But we're, in order to get to freedom, you have to be open to change if you are at all trapped. So you and I follow each other on Instagram. And I recently did a post there about the Titans, which were the generation of gods that Sibylle was, or Rhea, whatever name you like, was of, that my avatar, Helios, was as well. They preceded the Olympians. And their leader, Cronus, who you mentioned earlier, decided that rather than face change that the Olympian gods represented, he would eat them as children. He literally tried to devour the future rather than face change. Without going into detail about the myth, suffice it to say, change found its way to his doorstep. He literally ended up castrated and banished away forever. He still exists, the past, but it does not have power Talk to me about what that story represents to you, particularly um, as someone who, in a lot of your writing, and by virtue of the, um, the subject matter that you talk about, is literally representing and focusing on change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's, it's, interesting to watch the very same thing kind of playing out today whereas the um i'll call them the soulless minions of orthodoxy are mm-hmm. essentially chronos today they're yes. they're seeing that change is coming they don't want change to come and they would rather devour the next generation and destroy what is coming then then embrace that change and the, the i mean i mean you you said a moment ago that um how did you put it oracles exist to come true or or or, or something yeah. along those lines um yeah. and yeah. that that is true but it didn't have to be that way for chronos um he didn't have to cling tenaciously to his power to the point of destroying everything else just so he could remain the boss. What, what, 
what is he getting from that? Sure, he's the king of the gods, but who cares at that point? You can still be the father of the king of the gods. And A, it's probably an easier life. And B, that's still a pretty um pretty prestigious position. Um yeah. instead he's banished to well to the good corner of the underworld, um, where the good folks go. Um and in that way, like like you mentioned, the past no longer has power, but it still has that sort of nostalgic pull to it. Because in mm. many ways the Greeks looked at um at the the reign of Kronos as a golden age. And when Zeus yeah. took over, it was not quite as good. Um, they, they didn't necessarily think he was a bad king, but they thought Kronos was better. And so he ends up being relegated to this corner of nostalgia with, with no real power. Um, and again, it didn't have to be that way for him. It's interesting because talking about nostalgia, you know, for instance, in my own life, prior iterations, particularly when I worked for large organizations, I had twice C-suite positions. And when those things ended, I knew I had to change. Otherwise, I would end up like Cronus. Just, yeah, maybe I would be in a good section of town, but it would still be the underworld. It wasn't what I had imagined that my life would be. And there have been times as I have sailed on this voluntary odyssey into a different life that I've looked back with nostalgia and said, just like Cypher in the Matrix, I wish it could have been easier for me. Freedom is something I feel ambivalent about. And in fact, I'm almost hearing, if we are to really extend this analogy a little bit further, um, Cronus was a tyrant. At least, arguably, Zeus was less so. He didn't kill his own children. Well, yeah. He tried. Well, he ate, a, he ate a wife, but he didn't, <laughs> right? But even then, he didn't kill her. And um, and he, he attempted to, at least if you were to accept that system of justice that was in operation back then, rule the universe in a way that's just. But the position that Cronus was in and that we all find ourselves in when change happens, whether forcibly or not, can be one that ultimately leads towards nostalgia. Or maybe not. Maybe not. Um, what are your thoughts does this strike any bell or ring any chords with you? Are there, you know, for people who might be afraid, for instance, to make changes in their lives um, or might be listening to these stories and thinking, well, I don't want to end up like Qantas either. Um, how do you tell them if they're, if the, you know, the pull of nostalgia comes up even before the nostalgia is ready to be nostalgia yet? Well, I think, I mean, one thing about nostalgia is that it's not real. Um, we are nostalgic for things that never existed. We think they existed. Um, but you know, you see today with people who are nostalgic for the fifties, they're nostalgic for yeah. this time when there were plenty of good jobs and there was no mental illness and there was no, yeah. you know, there were no you know, there were no transgenders trying to confuse everybody and there were no gays and none of this stuff. That is not right. a real time, right? Like they, 
transgender people have always existed. Gay people have always existed. Um, people yeah. who are mentally ill have always existed. But we, we view these periods as, especially when we haven't lived through them, the only way we can experience them is through the popular media of the time. And the popular media of the time didn't talk about such things. If they did, it was occasionally a very special episode, if you know what I mean. Um, and, but, and, and, but, but for the most part, they were just kind of glossed over. It was, you know, things like leave it to beaver or the Brady bunch where everything was just hunky dory all the time. And they, there were little conflicts, but it was never, um, it was always on an interpersonal sort of basis. Teenagers being a jerk kids stole something from the store or something like that. And we have to impart some life lessons onto the kids. These, this is not real. Right. There have always been people who existed outside of the margins of society. And there have always been, there has always been conflict and strife, whether it's a class based issue or race based or, um, sexuality or gender or whatever it is. There has always been this conflict. But when we look at it through the lens of nostalgia, we don't see what is real. We see what, we see what we want to see. It goes as to the underlying lens metaphor of this season of the show, which is myth. What I'm hearing is that you're arguing that the media right now, television or other particular particularly episodic fictions, but maybe even the news media itself are the modern day myth makers. And we're buying into those myths without necessarily understanding that, as is the case with every myth, there are things that are highlighted, there are things that are not shared or downplayed. Mm -hmm. I'm also hearing, though, that nostalgia, and I hadn't really thought about this before, but nostalgia is itself a toxic myth that we tell ourselves Mm -hmm. because like i said it never is the whole story it isn't something that exists now and nostalgia can be easy and fun to feel but it is something that separates us from truth yeah yeah absolutely and it's it's not It's not something necessarily to cut out of your life altogether. I enjoy watching reruns of Star Trek. Why? Because I feel nostalgic about it and it makes me feel good. But you, you can't let that, um, you can't let that dictate to you what, what the world is to be because it's, it's, it's not real. Like, Like it's maybe not real is not, the best way to describe it because myths are real, but they're not based in material reality. They can still change the way you view the world. Um, and you see mythologies built around politicians as well. Doesn't, doesn't matter the political stripe, not going to get into that, but you look at any politician, they build a mythos around themselves that people then feel towards and often it's based on nostalgia which is why politicians are always old 
especially today. Mm-hmm. Again, doesn't matter what side of the wow. political aisle you're on. They're all old. Yeah. And yeah. as a result, you a, a lot of people look to them to fill in this sort of nostalgic idea of the past that again was never there. So when you're looking at dislodging toxic myths, you you have to exist in, you have to look at things through a lens of reality and through not, not just listening to what people are telling you, but well, what, what's, what's the classic, um, you know, judge people by the quality of their character. Um, yeah. and the, I, th- I think, I think it originally it was an MLK quote, uh, to do with, you know, the yeah. color of one's skin, but, um, I don't think that that part is necessarily relevant here, but looking at, you know, judging somebody by the quality of their actual character, as opposed to just what they're telling you they're about, I think is, is important. There was so much that you said in there that I want to dig into that is actually a little bit overwhelming. So I'm going to go one step at a time in response. I thank you. I need to. Maybe the first thing I will go into, which is embedded in what you said, is the relationship between the myth teller and the myth listener or the person, uh, listen, the person who is hearing the myth and attempting to extract meaning from it. So what do I mean by that? The myth tellers in, back in the ancient Greek times would have been people like Homer. And then the myth listener would have been the audiences that would just listen in rapt attention as he, he or his orators down the road would share these stories. Today, as we've just mentioned, it's the mass media that may be at least partially the myth tellers, along with what you're suggesting, the politicians that utilize the media as a platform, and as well as other individuals that may have agendas that they're using the myth tellers to pass these myths on. But what I'm curious to hear your thoughts about, uh, particularly when it comes to myths that can become toxic and hold us back or keep us limited in certain roles, whether they're external social roles or internal roles that we have, is to what extent do you believe, and I'm even wondering this as I'm listening, that that inner relationship is symbiotic or independent. On the one hand, I know it's symbiotic because the myth teller has to have someone listening for him or her to share the myth with anybody. But to what extent is the myth teller merely reflecting back what the myth hearer wants to hear, wants to have said to them? And what does that mean for all of us as we're listening to these myths? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that, Oh man, um, <laughs> I'm having a moment like you just had. <laughs> um, so I am reminded of, um, so I'm thinking about in the ancient world where myths were told, um, there's many different reasons, uh, uh, the theories, I should say. There's many different theories for where myth comes from, why myth exists. Um, mm-hmm. one of the, one of them that I think is interesting is the euhemerist approach, um, where, uh, for the audience, in case you're not familiar, it's basically taking the approach that mythology was 
told in order to explain something that actually happened. Um, it's mm -hmm. a several hundred or even thousand years long game of broken telephone. So it's obviously right. not the case that Kronos actually ate his children and a rock and was forced to vomit them all up. That's obviously, that, that obviously did not happen. Right. Hop in a time machine, bring a video camera. I don't care how far back you go. That didn't happen. However, there might be some kernel of you hammerist truth in there. And taking that approach is how we discovered the city of Troy. Um, in the first place, we assumed that, you know, there must be some truth to it. So we went to where Troy was described to be. Lo and behold, there is the city of Troy or what's yeah. left of it. Um, however, those myths were told largely because people wanted to tell them. Um, and the ones that stuck around were the ones that the audience found more interesting. Um, and it kind of creates a more creative atmosphere when one is able to just kind of express the ideas that one has, regardless of what mm -hmm. the audience wants. If the audience mm -hmm. ends up liking it, cool, great. If they don't, whatever, you move on with your life, you make another story. Um, or you keep telling the same story to a dwindling crowd at the bar in the evening. Um, All right. <laughs> and hope someone finally is interested. <laughs> exactly. But um, I, mm -hmm. I am reminded of an anecdote that I heard by... Um, I believe it was Frank Zappa, um, where he was saying when he got his start, um, I, I, I could be incorrect here, but I believe he got his start in like the early mid sixties. And at the time he was saying, you know, you had these like fat cat record producers that were like the stereotypical, like big fat guy with a cigar and uh, no offense with some, with some uh, suspenders and just like sitting behind a big old oak desk. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, other than the suspenders, you do not fit this myth at all, my friend. But, but they were like, you know, someone would bring them a record and they'd be like, I don't know what it is. Put it out. See what people like it. And that created this atmosphere where a lot of creativity came out. A lot of records came out that were kind of weird, kind of off the beaten path, didn't sell a lot of copies, but they still were created, which is really cool. Whereas right. later on, once the seventies rolled around late sixties, early seventies, the record label started to hire a hippie to hang out and be like, you know, this is what the kids are into. This is what you should be putting out. And I know because I have my finger on the pulse. As a result, they started putting out only stuff they thought was commercially viable, which distilled what was available down to what people wanted or what people thought they wanted. Um, and Weirdly enough, the record industry was better off with those fat cat guys who had no idea about music. They would just put out whatever mm -hmm. and it created a more creative environment. So uh, I know that was long winded, but to come back to um, your question about the symbiotic relationship is of this, this, this sort of back and forth of, pardon me, of what do you want? Okay, cool. Thanks for telling me what you want. I'm going to tell you 
what you want to hear. And it, it, it kind of is a back and forth program process, which sounds ideal on the surface. But when you really get down to it, the problem therein lies that you are given only what you think you want and nothing that you don't want. And as a result, you don't get exposed to any ideas that really challenge you. Yeah, it's interesting there. I'm going to reference two books that I read in preparation for the season of the podcast. One was The 40 Laws of Power and one was, I believe its title was The Charisma of Hitler. And it was literally a study of Hitler's charisma and what that meant for his quote unquote leadership of Germany during World War II. How I tie those into everything that you just said. A, one of the things that Hitler's people literally did was create a mythology around him, like the modern politicians, and I'm sure some of them have studied him. In fact, it's on record that some of them have studied him, I won't say who, but some of them have, and decided to build mythos around themselves just as he did. Now, that was a successful ploy for gaining power. He tied it into what he perceived the desire of the German people for their mythological leader to be. And he was able to, of course, tap into that undercurrent of desire within the, at least a certain segment of that population to tremendous effect. The 40 Laws of Power points out, as Hitler did, that if you want to change people's ideas and thinking, if you want new ideas, if you want them to change, it's important to be sure to wrap the language of change in the past because people are less threatened by ideas that they perceive to not threaten the established order. Even if they say they want change, really they want the same, yep. just nicer. Yep. And so tying things together in the past, as Hitler did, appeals to this mythological sense of um, nostalgia that people have, but allows a new framework for change to happen. Again, Hitler's framework certainly was different. I don't know. Well, I think we all know that it was not successful. Thank God. And it's not anything that anyone wants to emulate. However, there are lessons to learn from it. And so one of the things that everything that you have just said to me, again, sort of thinking about this reading that I've done about this, is if we are going to be reframing our own myths that might frighten us, or the myths of the milieus that we're in, to what extent can we and should we then frame them in with a connection to the past? which in a way you're doing through your video blog, if I interpret that correctly. I mean, I mean, I, I kind of am. I kind of am. I didn't necessarily think of it that way. Um, I certainly wasn't thinking of Hitler when I, when I, when I conceptualized what I was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, in a way, um, yeah, I guess like, I mean, I, I do, I do history research, but I also am a science fiction writer. So my mind is either far in the past or far in the future. I, I, I never exist here, but, um, ah. and it, it's, it's interesting that, um, even when you read science fiction, a lot of it is very conservative. 
Um, mm-hmm. Sure, it's a thousand years in the future and there's aliens and lasers and spaceships and stuff, but we still have very traditional rigid gender roles. Um, and mm-hmm. you find that in, I, I, I think it's only within the last decade or so that, um, more diverse voices are being heard within science fiction. And that's really cool. Um, but even in this genre that you'd think would be the most forward thinking genre and is by definition forward thinking, it's still couched in these ideas of the past. Um, and I, I guess you're right that it is less threatening for people because they, they realize that, okay, well, the past happened and we're still here. So it couldn't have been that bad. Spoiler alert. Sometimes it's really bad, but, but, but we, we, we assume that it's not going to, well, the past can't hurt us because it's already happened. Um, the future can hurt us because it hasn't happened yet. And so some people just Mm. think, let's just keep doing what we've always been doing because it's working. Even though the, 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 the longer we do that, the more we realize it's not working, but, and, and the, the, the change is never real change. Right. You know, when it comes to to politics, you vote for the Mm -hmm. party A, party A. I don't like them. They're not doing a good job. Let's vote in party B. Party B is in power for a while. Oh, they're not doing a good job. We want change. What do you do? You go back to party A. You party, party A already showed you they, they don't know what they're doing. Party B doesn't know what they're doing, but neither one of them do. And yet you keep flip flopping back and forth and calling that change. Right. <laughs> it is sort of yeah, and it is sort of funny now that you say that. I think about, for instance, Barack Obama. His message, as everyone knows, because it was played out ad nauseum, hope and change. But when you think about it, it was change represented solely by his race, which was itself purely a mythical construct. It doesn't actually biologically yeah. exist. It only exists insofar as we have agreed that it exists mm-hmm. and then act on it much to the historical shame of the United States um, in a way that's that's usually destructive. But think about how every other way he presented himself. He was a cisgendered male of a certain age. He was tall. He was classically good looking. He had traditionally qualifying backgrounds. His policies were still caught in a, despite all this talk about hope and change, they were caught in the Reagan-based and Clinton-based paradigms for slightly left of center on many issues, social policy, but an old school foreign policy and uh, and, an old school view as to uh, what our economic priorities Mm -hmm. were. And so what distinguished him perhaps was his managerial ability, but Let's face it, that wasn't what anyone was voting on. They were voting for this myth in the future of transformation that was sort of thinking about it, listening to you, just merely a slightly varied hearkening back to a prior archetype. Unfortunately, even that was more than a lot of people were comfortable with, at least here in the United mm-hmm. States. But it's hard for me sort of thinking about it and looking at it objectively to make any other conclusion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even, um, <laughs> even with Trump's make America great again slogan, that is like originally it was a Ronald Reagan slogan, 
right? So yeah, yeah, yeah you didn't know that. I did not yeah. know that. Um, yeah. It was, uh, it was, yeah, it was used used by Reagan. Um, so it's it's all hearkening to the past, and you you could argue that Trump was a a harbinger of change as well, um, yeah. in some ways more so than Obama. Um, yeah. It, I think that's indisputable, yeah, yeah. honestly. You know, change for the better, for the worse. You know, you, you you can argue that. I'm not going to because I, you know, I I don't really have. I I don't like any politician. I never do. Um, so I'm not I'm not going to get into that. But um, it's always change, but comfortable very comfortable change. And the longer that goes on, the longer you're like, okay, well, let's, you know, incremental, incremental, little bitty, little bitty, tiny changes. Um, the whole, the, the classic, you, you will hear this from any politician. Oh, real political change takes time. It's, you know, it's a slow and painstaking process. That's a myth itself, right? That the politicians yeah. are telling you that myth themselves true. and telling each other That's that true. myth. There's no reason why real political change needs to come slowly. It no. just is going to inconvenience the people who are in charge of this world. So they, they so they want it to come slowly so they can prepare for it. I mean, you know, it is. True. When you think about it, I mean, we may not be comfortable with them, but revolutions have happened in the history of this mm-hmm. world. <laughs> That's rapid political change. Thank you for joining us for part one of the Purpose Highway interview with Sophie Edwards. Next time, Sophie and I are going to talk about what her transformation as a trans person can teach all of us about dislodging the toxic myths about who we are, the fear, the emotional impact, the power of living a life of purpose, and how true charisma can emerge from taking a bold step and going behind everything that's been keeping you in place and stepping into your truth. It'll be an incredible episode. In the meantime, if you like what we're doing, leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts and give us a thumbs up on YouTube. And most of all, be sure to subscribe. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's Nola, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's Nola crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is.